the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 486 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. Spring is on the way if it's not already there where you are, unless, of course, you're in Australia, New Zealand, then welcome fall uh, and in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, but I'm so excited to have Oliver Berkman here. And we're marking the seasons because we're talking about, well, your lifespan and a whole lot more. Uh, more on that in a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com and by Leader. Check out leader.com. That's L E A D R.com for how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention my name, use the promo code CARRY for 20% off your first year. Well, uh, shortly after my book, At Your Best, came out, people started to recommend another book on time management, one called 4,000 Weeks. And uh, I heard about it so many times, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this book. So I bought the book and I was so interested in it, I reached out to Oliver Berkman and he said, yeah, 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 I'll come on your show. And what was fascinating is uh, he answered my email by saying, well, wouldn't you know, exactly one month ago today, I purchased your book at your best. That is the day that I emailed him. So he said, we should definitely do this interview. So um, yeah, very different approach and thought process to time management. This is actually more of a work of philosophy, I think, than practical things. And we talk about why traditional time management has failed him and so many other people, what's wrong with it, how being a productivity geek had a negative impact on his life, and why understanding that you have 4,000 weeks to live has become so liberating for him and now lots of other people. The book is doing extremely well. And he is the author of the New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller, 4,000 Weeks. And he also has written The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. What a fantastic title. And Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. For many years, he wrote a popular column for The Guardian, This Column Will Change Your Life. Again, another great title. And he has a newsletter called The Imperfectionist, where he writes about productivity, mortality, and the power of limits. And he lives in North York Moors in Northern England. I hope I got that right, but that's where we come to him. And one of the fun parts of this interview is uh, the roosters and chickens in the background. So, you know, almost 500 episodes in, never had that before. And I think we left that in. We didn't cut it out because it was it was a blast. Anyway, um, hey, we want to thank Promedia Fire, who is helping just thousands of church leaders and business leaders advance their mission. So if you're frustrated with staff turnover on your creative and digital teams, I mean, they're in high demand. You have two options when you're trying to fill a position. You can hire an internal staff member that's an expert in one or two main areas or hire ProMedia Fire and get an entire team of experts for less than the cost of a professional staff hire. With ProMedia Fire, you save on employee taxes and health insurance and internal staff. And turnover becomes a thing of the past because, well, you've got an agency taking care of everything. So the choice is yours. Hire one person or get an entire team of professionals at a great cost. So teams win championships. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com. And the other day, I heard that 50% of people are still planning to leave their current jobs in 2022, which is crazy. 
And by now, you've heard me talk about what my friends over at Leader, the first ever people development software, are doing by transforming the great resignation into the great resolution. They're on a mission to develop one million leaders by helping leaders just like you engage and grow your teams. Let's face it, people want to be led. They actually want to be developed. They don't just want to be managed. So how do you care for your team and develop them while fueling your mission? You do it through Leader. Leader will help you develop leaders at scale with consistent one-on-one meetings, clear goals, and regular feedback. So check them out. It's leader, L-E-A-D-R, no second E, dot com, for how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention my name, just use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, at leader.com, and you will get 20% off your first year. That's L-E-A-D-R.com. Use the promo code CAREY, 20% off for your first year. Well, I'm very excited to get into this conversation. It's a, a different take on productivity and some really good uh, like philosophy bordering on theology in my conversation with best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author of 4,000 Weeks, Oliver Berkman. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oh, I'll tell you, your book, 4,000 Weeks, uh, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, uh, it is burning up the charts. It's got a lot of traction. And uh, you've had interviews with Malcolm Gladwell. Tim Ferriss actually put one of your chapters on his podcast and as yeah. a regular listener. that I don't think he's ever done that. Like that's a, that's a high compliment. I'm sure he's going to have you on. Any idea, when when did it release? Did it release in October of last year or when? It was, it was August, actually. August of last a, year. Any idea why... Yeah. Nine months later, this seems to be picking up steam and resonating with so many people. Wow. No, I mean, it's been very, very gratifying. I love it. And it's, and I'm sure that a huge amount of these things is always just luck, whatever it is. But um, to give a more substantive answer than that, um, I, I'm, I, there's two questions there. I, I, don't, I think the fact that it's a, a number of months on from the launch, that, that's just a question of how certain kinds of online dynamics work. It was a deliberate decision to launch in the summer. And then you sort of, you have certain points around the holidays where you can talk about it in a different way. And then there's the new year, which is always a sort of calendar notion for, for books that are, have advice or self-help in them. The the question of why uh, the sort of ideas that I'm talking about would resonate just more generally now, like this, this point in history or something, um, I think that I've been very fortunate. I did not write this book to um, target the emergence from the COVID pandemic, if we mm. grow up for now that we're emerging from it. Um, but I do think there's been a lot of reevaluation that people have been doing uh, going on. Uh, 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 some more um, people grasping a bit more clearly the limitations of certain ways that we've been approaching time and that some kinds of productivity advice might be encouraging us to to do. So I think it's fortuitous timing in that regard. Uh, but as I say, it was not a clever plan to have it come out at this this moment. The, the lockdown did help me in a certain ironic way because I, I was about two thirds of the way through and I got so terrified that the global publishing industry was going to collapse that I finally <laughs> uh, yeah. got my finger out and met the, met the, uh, well, well, I didn't actually meet the deadline, but I got, I got it in as fast as I could. Um, in fact, the global publishing industry has done very well because people want to read books, but, uh, so yeah, that's my story. Yeah. Um, and, and what's interesting about it, I mean, I'm just looking at the back cover, but Adam Grant said, this is the most important book ever written about time management. 
But in some ways, it came out of your frustration with all the time management books out there. You were a bit of a productivity ninja. And then you you hit a wall. Like, tell us, tell us how that happened. Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. I use the word productivity geek, not ninja, which I think is a little <laughs> bit a little bit less flattering. I was obsessed. I'm not saying that it necessarily led to um uh being particularly accomplished at managing my time. Um yeah, I, so I have long had a sort of interest in productivity and time management. I had sort of, in a sort of personal sense, you know, spent a lot of time trying to figure out the right system, the right set of techniques, the right way of scheduling my day. And at the same time, not coincidentally, I ended up writing this column for the Guardian newspaper for more than a decade. Um, one of the topics of which, it wasn't all about this stuff, but, you know, it, one thing it enabled me to do was to review the new books and try out the new systems and take the new courses, which is on the one hand, like the best thing ever, because you get to indulge your your weird obsession uh, for work. But on the other hand, it's a little bit enabling. You know, I say in the book, it's a little bit like being an alcoholic employed as a, as a wine reviewer. There's an, <laughs> there's an excuse there to keep pursuing. I think what I was doing, I see now in hindsight, was trying to find the technique or set of techniques that would deliver me this feeling of being in total control of my time, being able to handle anything that might be thrown at me, never having to disappoint people by saying no to them, feeling secure and confident about where my life was headed and my work was headed. You know, I was investing a lot in, in the, the, the hope that I could control my time mm. in this way. And so I think um, one of the sort of surprising benefits of that was if you, if you try like a hundred different ways over years of trying to reach this kind of control, this sort of mastery of your time, and it keeps not working. That's that's actually a very useful process to go through because you you begin to wonder if the question you're asking is the problem rather than that you haven't found the the right answer to it yet. So in many ways, this book is like what comes on the other side of that. It's like I I I, I became sort of disillusioned in a certain sense, mm -hmm. although I think it's a very positive idea, positive kind of disillusionment. And I think in some ways that's what I'm now trying to communicate in this, in this book. I'm trying to clear up certain illusions that, that well, get in I our way. Well, I think you have a, a fair critique of traditional time management. As you become more efficient, as you become more productive, you know, one of the arguments you make, and I'd like you to take it far beyond this observation is great. Now you just have capacity to fill your life with even more. And where is that getting us? And, you know, I wrote at your best as not, not a rebuke. It's a certainly a very different angle than what you have, but I found the same thing too, that you can just become more efficient, but that doesn't make you more effective. So what were your quibbles, arguments, frustrations with traditional time management, and and more particularly what it was producing in your life, Oliver? Yeah, it's a great um, <clears throat> way of asking the question. I mean, so firstly, yes, we can talk about this in much more detail, but I think a lot of people recognize that problem with um, with it pure, purely focusing on efficiency, this idea that if, if you make a system, any system really, including your own personal productivity, if you make that system more efficient, and that's all you do, so you get better and better at processing uh, more inputs in the same amount of time, all else being equal, what will happen is that 
for various different reasons, you'll attract more and more inputs into that system. And I think there's also reason to believe that there are more and more junk inputs as well. So it's like a lower quality mm. of, of stuff. And we see this reflected in sort of, you know, this is Parkinson's law, the idea that the work expands to fill the time available for its completion. It's that old thing about how um, the reward for good time management is more work. Um, because if you become the person in your office who can process a project faster than anyone else, what do you think is going to happen? You're just going to become a receptacle for, for even more of them, whether or not that's in line with your, with your goals and your values. I think to get really sort of um, briefly deep about it, um, yeah. the, the problem that I have with all of this advice, or at least with the way that I think people use it, I don't think the individual productivity writers are always at fault here necessarily. There's this kind of, they will talk about the fact that you can't do everything. They will talk about the fact that you've got to make choices, but there is very often this kind of backdoor um, or unspoken hope that you can actually use this most recent shiniest system to kind of avoid having to confront the consequences of being a finite human with limited time. So, you know, in many cases, it's not that the person writing the book is a pro I, you know, I think David Allen's getting things done is a work of genius and mm. has sort of influenced me in unlimited ways. My problem with that book was that I came to it thinking, ah, right, now I've got the way to never have to make any difficult decisions with my time, which he doesn't claim he's going to offer. Not his fault. Uh, other writers and, and, and sort of gurus, I think, are, are more at fault in what they hold out as being the the, the consequence. So if you come to these productivity techniques in that spirit, this idea that it's somehow going to enable you to do an end run around the human condition, uh, you're, you're not going to have to make tough choices. You're not going to have to sacrifice things you care about in order to focus on some other things that you care about. Um, you're always going to be able to process no matter how many emails come in or how many ambitions occur to you or however many obligations people try to put on you, you're always going to be able to find a way to handle them. Then, then that's when, that's when it all goes wrong. And it's a recipe for just getting more stressed and more frustrated because you never get to the place that you're, that you're aiming for. Just before you reply, let me ask if the, the, the roosters who are on the adjoining property to where I live have just started going completely insane. So if this, um, I think that's if, wonderful. If this microphone is picking up too much hen noise, let me know and I can, I'm, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what I can do about it, but let me know anyway. I think that's just fantastic. I've okay. never had roosters on the podcast before, <laughs> okay. so I think we'll just, we'll just leave it in. Um, ridiculous I, noise. I, they're, they're marking their territory. It's this kind of like, in chicken world, it's the, it's the expression of the ultimate kind of masculine, testosterone-fueled superiority and it just sounds so ridiculous it's just such a silly noise anyway carry on and you're in the north of england are you <laughs> yes. all over yeah we are we're, ah. we've we moved into the country we can talk about that if you want from brooklyn new york so <laughs> yeah um, from new york yeah yeah oh wow i i what i was going to ask you was approximately how old were you when you realized this traditional approach this geeked out approach to time management is not producing good things in my life when did that hit you well, it definitely didn't all happen at once. I do write in the book about an epiphany, which happened to me, I guess, when I was about, um, yeah, it wasn't very long ago, 40 or something. Uh, I'm 46 now. Um, but I think all through my 30s, it was growing. Uh, and I think, I don't know if this is what you're getting at necessarily, but I definitely think there are 
formulations of the the idea of a midlife crisis, not the ones we sort of joke about and like the sort of caricature, but the idea in Carl Jung and in other psychologists about this idea that there's a po- there comes a point when certain strategies that maybe worked and served you pretty well as a young adult start to stop working and you need to think again. And I think it, you know, it, it definitely was for me, the way this manifested was, it was an example of, of that. I've tried not to write a book that is only, that only speaks to other people in that situation. Cause I think a lot of this, these insights, um, are totally useful to get a handle on if you're 22 or <laughs> 70. Uh, and if, and if you feel that you haven't yet, but, um, but yeah, for me, it was very much a sort of, hang on a second. This has sort of worked in a way, not very well, but sort of for my twenties and early thirties. And it's sort of stopping, stopping working. You know, that's interesting. 500 interviews almost in on this podcast. One of the recurring themes, Oliver, is a lot of people, a lot of leaders end up working, refining, um, developing a system. And somewhere around late 30s to very early 40s, question it all and go, what is this actually getting me? And I think there's two paths. You either reinvent, like I did. My burnout happened at 41. So your big questioning started around a similar Mm. stage of life. And I think the option is you reinvent and get better, or perhaps you become very cynical and start to eye that retirement line going, this stinks. Here I am. And it was sort of that, that, gosh, this is not making me a better person, a better partner, a better father, eventually, um, this life. And, and you, were, you were an acclaimed journalist. Like you did, you did great work at a national, international level. So it's not like, oh, here I am, you know, piddling away at this job I don't like. You were, you were kind of living the dream, but realized it wasn't a dream. Is that a, a fair or more like a, had nightmarish qualities to the dream? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's totally right. I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to overstate my own like level of crisis. Uh, I'm not someone who, I think if you, it, for me, it was characterized much more by a sort of slow burn of, um, mm. sort of anxiety and, uh, not, not, and just sort of not being that happy. So I do think that some of the ways in which I'd approached using my time had, had definitely had some sort of positive effects, right? I mean, as you say, I'd managed to build a, a career that I think was pretty, pretty good. Um, yeah. But if you're doing that in the constant belief that you're headed, they're all sort of byproducts of this, of this um, quest to get to this point where you're going to be able to relax and be like, okay, now I know what I'm doing in life. Now I, mm. now I'm on top of things. Now I'm, now things are working out. It's when you you keep failing to get to that point through this method that um, that that it eventually begins to lose some of its allure because you're being led forward to something, right? You're not that I didn't have a huge amount of fun and and creative fulfillment doing all the things that I did um, as a working journalist. I really, really did have that, but but they were all sort of ultimately meaningful to me. It seemed because of where they were leading, mm. and where they were leading was presumptively somewhere where I was felt in control and secure and in not so vulnerable. And so I write in the book, you know, you get one of the things that was obvious to me at that point was that, you know, sorry, these chickens are, uh, yes, now, now he wild is coming outside, through, this is, this is entertaining. Window. This, this is everyone's <laughs> leaning in to see what happened next, Oliver. 
the problem is I've tried this. They're not my chickens, but if I go and sort of try to intimidate them, they go about, they get very, very flustered and they move about two feet. It makes no difference to the, uh, to the sound uh, interruption. So there's, there's really no point. It's one of those uh, things you just have to accept, I think. My, um, uh, my parents lived on the water for a number of years. <laughs> and when my grandmother was still alive, she was in her late 70s or 80s. Her job during the day when my parents were at work was to go and chase the Canada geese off the water, uh, <laughs> off the, the lawn. And it was never effective, but it gave right, her something right. to do. They would come back right. about a half hour later. So right. I think we yeah. are losing the battle against nature in the meta sense and perhaps in the micro sense. But yeah, I think we will persist. To, yes. I asked somebody around here, what's the way to, you know, um, get them to stop making a big noise if you want them to? And he said, a bullet. So uh, they're, not, they're not my chickens and I will not be taking that action. Um, oh. uh, <laughs> so, I'm not too worried about it. Anyway, um, what was I saying? I, I think that, um, uh, you know, one obvious area where these methods don't seem to work so much are in sort of my personal, in your personal life or one's personal life, right? It's like, you can get a lot done in the professional world through methods that are maybe not making you happy, but are generating enough positive results to not be questioned. But they don't tend to work so well when it comes to relationships and parenting and things like that. And I think what I came to see in hindsight, I write about this, was that I had on some level been thinking that I was going to get to a point where my life was so in order and, and like I was so on top of things that then I would be able to um, build the life that I assumed I wanted to at some point, which was, you know, to be in a committed relationship and, and perhaps to be a parent, which I turned out I ended up being, though it wasn't always um, a, a part of, that I knew would happen, I think, um, or knew that I wanted to happen, um, uh, th that I might be able to do all this just as another project, right? Feeling like calm and confident about it. Okay, you put it into practice and it happens and your life goes swimmingly. And of course, you know, it's very obvious to anyone who's been through any part of that, 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 that actually what you have to do is just sort of jump. You have to sort of, um, you, you have to surrender this desire to feel like you know exactly what you're doing in order to um, do an awful lot of the most important things in life. And if you had to know what you were doing before you became a parent, nobody would ever become a parent because it's one of those experiences that, that, that resists that kind of, uh, knowing from the outside. So, you know, that was one reason that I began to see the, the limitations of this approach, but apart from anything else as well, it just wasn't, it's not a, it's not a way to feel very happy to feel like you're constantly uh, approaching something that you never get to. And it's been quite a few years now. So don't you think you would have got to it by now if it was there, I suppose. <laughs> that whole idea of hope or promise deferred, right? Yes, which I, which right. I think is, a, a and, and this this is one of the things I really appreciate. I mean, I picked it up thinking it was a time management book and realized this is as much a work of philosophy and perhaps as we'll talk about theology, I think as it is anything, which I really enjoyed. But I'd love just so people who haven't read the book, uh, 4,000 weeks as a concept, where did that come to you? And not a spoiler alert, but that's basically the number of weeks that you have in a typical lifespan is about 4,000 weeks. And the um, <laughs> great subtitle, Time Management for Mortals. It's fantastic. Um, where did that con How did that concept hit you? Was it a particularly morbid day when you're like, oh, all I have is 4,000 <laughs> weeks? Okay. How did that hit you, Oliver? 
You know, I don't vividly remember the, the, where I was in my life when I made the calculation. I remember what happened when I made the calculation, which is that I sure. sort of freaked out. And then, as I say in the book, I went around asking my friends, like, how many weeks do you think? Don't do any maths in your head. Just tell me what you think. And you get some wild figures. You know, people are, say, like 150,000 or something. And you're like, afraid not. At 4,000, I'm rounding down to get a, to get a, um, a good headline figure. But basically, it's that not many more than that is, is equivalent to the average lifespan in the West. Yeah. Um, and... You know, in a way, there's a bait and switch involved in the title here because, firstly, I I, I think that induces panic in people when they realise what it is, and I'm I I hope and believe that the philosophy that the book espouses is is actually comes as a relief and a, and a liberation. It's not it's not a that, that, there's one approach to all this stuff which involves saying not you can do everything and you have all the time in the world, which is one mistake of some kinds of time management advice, but actually the other kind, the, the other f- way of doing this that I differ from is saying like, you've got so little time, you've just got to do something totally extraordinary with every day. And you've got to be doing, you know, you'll be going base jumping at the weekends and whatever it might be. Um, and that's just an incredibly stressful, self-conscious, anxious way to live. I, I don't want to counsel that either, but what I'm really getting at, I think in 4,000 weeks is like, it's really finite. It, it's, it's, um, it's very short, but even if it were quite a bit longer, it would still have this quality of coming to an end. And it's because it comes to an end that all these things um, matter for us, this question of how you should use a day and whether you are wasting your time and how you can fit more things into the same amount of time. All of this is just a consequence of the fact that time is, that our earthly time is, is finite. So in a way, it's not really to do with the fact that it's only 4,000 weeks because the same problem would happen if it was 8,000. I think maybe if it was like 200,000, that would feel so different that, that we wouldn't be troubled in the same way. But, but, but it's finitude that I really want to get at as opposed to the specific number. I think this might be my last question about traditional time management techniques, but I think regular listeners of this podcast are the kinds of people who buy the time management books. And you argue that it produces or can produce an existential angst. It did in you and it does in others. And then you also say, I think you make a really compelling argument early in the book that people are struggling with what you call existential overwhelm, a term that I love. It just immediately resonated what do you mean by that? Like existential angst, existential overwhelm. What does that mean to you, Oliver? Well, what it means in the context that I define it in the book is that, you know, it's easy to assume that when we think about being overwhelmed and busy today and, and the particular quality of unmanageability that I think comes with modern busyness, right? It's not just having lots to do. It's, it's, it's feeling that there's more that you must do than you can do. Um, this is obviously felt a lot by people in various lines of work where they have long to-do lists, but it's kind of broader than that. It's kind of a phenomenon just of being alive today at this point mm-hmm. in, in history. So that, you know, even if you're retired and you have plenty of financial resources and you have none of the problems that we think of a busy working person as having, there's still like 
far more possibilities in the world in which we live, and you and you will know about far more possibilities than than you could ever um, get around to. If you are a sort of very hedonistic person who just like uses social media to find out about great parties happening in your vicinity and want to spend your whole life with them, there will still be more of them, thanks yeah. to the way you're connected to them technologically than you could possibly attend. And you can sort of replicate this for any domain you like. There's just a sense that the experiences the world has to offer um, because of our point in history and because of how we relate to the information about them are are just constantly far more than you will ever be able to um, get your arms around. And that in a way, this does leave people feeling really burdened, even if what they're burdened by is how to spend a lot of leisure time, right? It, it might be a bit nicer to be that to be overwhelmed in that way than overwhelmed uh, in, in some other ways. But it's still this kind of lack of fit between what's on offer and what you can make time for yourself. It is that sense of infinitely more. Well, I went to Machu Picchu and that was great, but I haven't yet been to Africa, but I haven't right. yet been to Asia. Right. But I, oh, I've been to Asia, but we only spent a week there. We have right. to go back and do a month. And it's just like the to-do list at work never stops. The number of relationships is infinite. The number of experiences. We become kind of those adrenaline junkies, those experience junkies. And, you know, what I really loved, and, and I want to pivot now and talk a little bit about the uh, philosopher. So here's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing the Swedish philosopher, Martin Hagland, if I got that name right. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is what he said. <clears throat> if you really thought life would never end, then nothing could ever genuinely matter because you'd never be faced with having to decide whether or not to use a portion of your precious life on something. Can you uh, dig in? That's a really fascinating quote. And I guess this idea, and we do have tech titans now basically pursuing um, living forever Mm. or longer or 200 years. But his point is simply that if you have this idea of living forever, it demotivates you from prioritizing your time. Can you, can you explain why that was such a compelling thought to you? Yeah, yeah. And that that you read is me paraphrasing him and then you're so paraphrasing you. that. Okay. So I just want to be, I just want to, he might object. <laughs> if, he, if he came across this, he might object to uh, what I'm getting from his work. But I'll tell you what I do get from his work. He wrote a brilliant book called This Life, uh, which is a sort of case for a very sort of it's a sort of case for secularism in many ways and a case for um and a case for finding meaning in the fact that we are finite and let's put a pin in the question of whether the eternal life that he's talking about is actually what religious people mean i'd love to return to that sure. to that topic yeah but, i would love but, to talk but about that. if we, we had eternal life in the sort of mundane sense of the life we have now just continuing and continuing and continuing and never coming to an end. In other words, the kind that in theory might be developed in Silicon Valley uh, at some point um, in the future, solving death as they mm. uh, not at all hubristically uh, <laughs> like to uh, describe it. Um, there would be there would be a lack of stakes. I think that's the way I think about it. Um, uh-huh. That the stakes would be non-existent. Um, uh, the the reason that it matters to use a portion of time for anything is ultimately because deciding not to deciding to use it on that thing is 
deciding not to use it on anything else. So, you know, that's why you make tough, have to make tough choices. It's also why you, it also sort of gives meaning to some of those choices, right? If you, if you see what you're sacrificing in order to, to make them. And there's always, for a finite human, there's always sacrifice in every choice, whether you recognize it or not. Whereas if we lived forever, the, the answers I say in the book, you know, the answer to the question, um, should I do X or Y with today or with this career or should I would always be just like, who cares? I mean, you'll have a million other opportunities to try out all the alternatives. Um, you'll never have to, um, forego any experience that occurs to you or any ambition or any relationship that you feel like you might want to enter into. I mean, the experiment, the thought experiment breaks down. Obviously you can't be monogamously, Mm -hmm. you can't be in a monogamous relationship with two people at the same time. And, you know, you have to, there are still choices, but, but what's, but, but what is given to us as a result of our being finite is the fact that every choice matters that, that, um, that there's this sort of huge hinterland of things you're turning down every time you decide to do anything. So yeah, you you said you're you're open to this. So I'd like to to just uh, run some thoughts by you and and just get your reaction to it because I I read the book as a person of faith. So I'm a Christian mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I'm one of those people who do believe that life happens after we die in our earthly existence. But there's two different views, and I'll just I'll just talk for a moment, and then I'd love to see your engagement because I don't yeah. think I don't think your book is an anti-theistic book. You seem very open. You I think you quote from Jesus. I believe you quote from Ecclesiastes, and you quote from other world faiths. So it's not like it's not like an anti-theistic book. But my understanding, if you look at and and again, we have a variety of Christians. People are not going to hundred percent agree on everything. But if you believe that there's an afterlife. There's two views of it. And one that I would not subscribe to is what you do in this life doesn't matter because you can live forever. You can destroy the environment because God's going to renew it. You can, you know, do whatever you want with this life. Like that 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 doesn't strike me well as all or that nothing happens spiritually on this life until you get to heaven that you can't mm-hmm. really fully know God that you reconciliation isn't possible, peace isn't possible. There's another view, and this one I subscribe to a little bit more. And I had a fascinating conversation with John Ortberg. We'll link to it in the show notes about eternity being now in session. And so the idea, the study of of like eternity is is in theology called eschatology. It just means it happens after you die. And there's there's a, a view called realized or partially realized eschatology. So when Jesus walked around, he would say the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is now. And you can look at that and go, well, 2,000 years ago, it was really close, but it's not close now. But another understanding of it, and I think the better understanding is, no, it actually is now. So I've been married to the same woman for over 30 years. And, you know, I was saying to my wife, Tony, the other day, it feels like the kingdom of God is nearer in our marriage than it was 15 years ago. Like there is a a peace, a harmony, a oneness. Um, You know, when you pursue peace over war, I think you realize some of the kingdom of God when you restore a harmony to nature, you get a little bit closer to the Garden of Eden and a little bit less on the other side of Eden. Um, and you care for the environment. You're realizing the kingdom. When there's peace between human beings of different worldviews, you're realizing the kingdom. So all these things that Jesus taught, you could say, oh, they're pie in the sky after you die. Or you could say, no, 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 they're fully realized after you die. But it actually, the idea that we're living forever actually incentivizes you 
to make this world, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others, a better place. Thoughts on that? It's it's totally fascinating. Um, I've been endlessly fascinated by the various religious and especially Christian responses to the book, which have not at all been hostile. I mean, very sometimes critical, but but um, it clearly connects to a lot of things that are very interesting to uh, people who think deeply about Christian theology. No, and I'm totally religion curious. I'm not, I'm far from being hostile, apart from being anti-theist. I sort of yeah. If, I didn't pick that up. I feel at like, all in the book. No, I kind of feel like you know. I, my, the only problem is there are certain things I think you have to believe that I can't honestly say that I do believe. Uh, but um, but there is so much in in those perspectives that does resonate and that I draw on here and there in the in the book. Um, right, I think that the so I, w- one thing to say here is I think that. Um, there are clearly lots of ways of talking about eternal life that do not vibe with this notion that it's just an, you know, more time to complete your to-do list or whatever. It's a, <laughs> right, that it's right. some form of um, re- realization of, or um, uh, there's another noun that I'm not, that's not coming to me, but some, some sort of um, like a, flowering or a blossoming of something in a way that is that is that is a sort of a state change and is doesn't doesn't um it doesn't make sense to think of it as like a a, a mere continuation and then and then secondly also these ideas that there's something sort of certainly some ways that people talk about eternal life i feel like i've come across this more in the in the jewish faith but i it might well be a, a christian idea that it's more to do with it's more to do with switching from a sort of a horizontal to a vertical idea of time, if that's a one way of trying to get at it. It's it's it it's not a linear idea at all, right? And that may be connected mm. to something that you were just saying. It's it's to do with it, it it's 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 to do with some concept of time that goes beyond the timeline. So it's not just about in what way does the timeline keep going if you believe in this. It's it's just a separate it's a, diff- a fundamentally different thing that then connects to certain ideas in Eastern religions about spiritual enlightenment and transcending the the self and all these ideas. Um, and, and you get this notion in all sorts of philosophies and spiritual faiths that in some sense we are time, which I find very sort of fascinating idea to sort of think with. And, and it, and it, I'm probably not making a lot of sense because it's getting to the limits of my, um, ability to talk about, but there is some sense of the collapse of that linear view of time and and the idea that eternal life means something completely other than that. That is very biblical, Oliver. Um, the collapse of the linear view of time. No, you're you're right. you're not you're this is this is right on. I mean theologians, it's very interesting. Theologians, I mean, back as far as Aquinas and before that, had this idea of creation ex nihilo, which means right. out of nothing. Right. And for a long time, nobody really believed that, that the universe was eternal. And then when you look at the Big Bang, it seems like, oh, everything actually did come out of nothing, mm. whatever that nothing was. And time had a beginning, um, but time also has no ending, which is interesting. And, and, you know, the Christian worldview would say, no, God always was and always will be. Mm-hmm. And so there is that idea that this space-time continuum that we're in at some point is going to be rendered meaningless and we will be in some other state, which right. almost sounds very, yeah, that sounds very meta, but that is, you know, 
there, there's some really good theology around that. I, I think where this, where this really interests me, and maybe this is going off topic, so just tell me, but um, is I think if I'm honest, in my book, I treat the fact that we long to be infinite and that we long to have um, all the time in the world, et cetera, et cetera, as I don't really talk about where this comes from. I just, I just point out that it, that there's a mismatch between it and our worldly existence. But I guess if I was sort of pressured to explain that, I would sort of see it as some kind of evolutionary glitch or some sort of, you know, it's the fact that we, we, our, our minds have developed these capacities to sort of think about or contemplate eternity, contemplate being able to be more than mortal um, and to want to, I think that's the thing, it's the desire, right? To want um, to be able to do more than we can do on on earth. Uh, and it's just a sort of accident that we need to get over. And since the book came out, I've, I've, I've read some and been contacted to discuss some very interesting aspects of this coming out of, coming out of Christian theology, which I, um, I think one way of thinking about what, what these people want to say in terms of where they part company with my thesis is that that longing, that, that is itself, there, there is somehow the expression of something uh, divine, that the longing itself, which is not fulfillable in the mundane time that we have on the planet, uh, hence all the things I write about in the book, but that, that, that longing itself is something, is, is some is either from God or evidence of God or something like that. There's a quote from very famous quote from C.S. Lewis that I'm sure you're super familiar with. That if I if I find in myself a, a desire that can't be fulfilled by any aspect of my earthly existence, then the logical uh, conclusion is that I was created for something more than earthly existence. Right? I'm not sure I buy that logic from my vantage point, but it but it's fascinating to me because I don't think yeah. I have a very good alternative answer to where this longing to be infinite comes from. Well, and I love the philosophical slash almost theological bent of your book. And I don't know that I have a lot of significant departure points from your conclusion because, you know, the scripture, when you look at them, Oliver, I mean, I think you and Solomon could be first cousins. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, depending on whether you think it was Solomon or Koheleth, that's a long debate. But the author of Ecclesiastes and you have an awful lot in common. It's like, this is meaningless, meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. I want to get to putting a dent in the universe. And yet, you know, when I think about realized eschatology, there's been a passage, I've been reading the scripture since I was a kid, that always perplexed me because we believe in salvation through Jesus. It's not like, well, when you die, you know, a little more good in your life, so therefore you go to heaven, or a little more bad in your life, therefore you're not in heaven. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus, I do, once and for all, died for people's sins and um, and it's through grace that we're saved, not by works. And yet Jesus drops all of these things where he says, and great is your reward in heaven. Mm. It's like, well, like what? Right. I've always it? wondered like, okay, so what? Like a Mercedes, a bigger house? Uh, that seems really selfish and trivial. Is it your salvation? No, because that got handled another way. And as I put that together, this is a working theory. I may get lots of comments <laughs> about this working theory. But I think it's it's because there's evidence that work isn't going to go away mm-hmm. in eternity, um, that what we're doing here is a shadow of what is to come, a distorted shadow, but a shadow of what is to come. There'll be relationships, there'll be meaning, there'll be purpose. 
And that perhaps if you were faithful, and Jesus told a couple of parables on this, if you were faithful with what you had been entrusted with in this life, you will be entrusted with more in the next. So, for example, we've had um, this thing in North America called the Emerald Ash Borer that went through our community in the last two years and destroyed a lot of trees. So we lost, we have a lot of mature trees in our property. We lost maybe 50, 100 trees. Wow. This year, I'm replanting them, not just for beauty's sake. We still have a lot of trees. But partly, I think that's my stewardship over creation. Like, mm-hmm. I, I get to co-partner with this, make it a better place. This leadership podcast is an exercise of stewardship. It's it's a way to bring great conversations with amazing leaders to thousands and millions of leaders. And, and so I really enjoy doing it. And so actually it's that eternal incentive, uh, not that I want the bigger house. I don't even know what that looks like, but you know, okay, if I am faithful somehow in this life, that that echoes into eternity, that's incentivizing me to do something meaningful with my life. Just a different view. Any yeah, thoughts no, are, are welcome. I, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I think that, I don't know if it's, I don't know how it connects with exactly with what you're saying, but I think that one of the one of the really sort of potent ways of of thinking about what people are doing when they are trying to use productivity to get control of their lives and to sort of become masters of their time and in some sense you know to play god over their yeah. over their time is to um, th- there is a sort of a quasi-religious aspect there. I think when I was, I think it makes sense to talk about what I was looking for from those techniques back in those yeah, sure. uh, days as a, my early thirties as as some kind of salvation. That word seems appropriate. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was a very bad way to find it, but it was no. Uh, but I think lots the, of people the urge it. is 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 well described by that. And so, you know, the notion that we're trying to I think whenever I write for a largely secular audience, whenever I write about the idea that we're trying to, that people are sort of trying to justify themselves and justify mm. their existence on the planet through the volume of their productivity uh, and and somehow get to a stage where they're okay and enough and accepted uh, because and acceptable because they are so efficient and productive that they can do all this stuff. That always resonates with people very strongly. And the the connection to discussions of grace and works-based salvation is just unignorable there, right? I mean, we're talking about the same psychological dynamics, uh, whether among religious people or not. And the notion that maybe you don't have to do an impossible amount or even anything to justify your existence on the planet is an incredibly powerful one that people are hungry for, regardless of how they frame things theologically or otherwise, I think. No, and I think, I think you know, to me, that is at the heart of the gospel, that salvation by grace means it doesn't matter what I do. I, I do not need to justify love. God's love for me comes unconditionally. And, and in some ways, you can see salvation as I'm not earning it, I'm accepting it, and right. I'm walking into it. And because I'm loved, my life has meaning. And out of that meaning flows something hopefully significant. And one of the things I love that you you take issue with, because I've been guilty of this, is like using, using the phrase that Steve Jobs popularized or perhaps invented, you know, I want to make a dent in the universe, mm-hmm. or I want my life to count, or I want it to have meaning or purpose. 
Um, I've definitely felt that urge, and that's an urge I'm trying to have redeemed on a regular basis, right? Purify my motives, God, make sure it's pure. What What is wrong with that kind of thinking? And because, because what you're saying, I mean, the psalmists talk about it like we're a speck in the universe. We're mm. dirt, we're dust, we're nothing. And who is God that you would think of us? And you've got a chapter that's very close to that. I think it's the one Tim Ferriss featured yeah. on his podcast. Yeah. Yeah, talk about talk about that realization as you've had it, Oliver, because I found it fascinating. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, this chapter is called Cosmic Insignificance Therapy, and this is my notion that there's actually something very empowering and uplifting about recognizing how insignificant each of us is in the in the um, uh, cosmic scheme, you know, um, mm. the, on the on the time scale uh, and of the from the perspective of the universe. Again, I think there are probably some interesting overlaps and tension points with theological views, but I'm sort of making the argument that there's a very great self-centeredness to a lot of the, the, the problems that certainly I, I think a lot of people, encounter with time. Not necessarily only with people who have sort of megalomaniac personalities. I think it can be very shy and retiring people can also be sort of entangled with this kind of self-focus where it just feels like every decision you face matters uh, cosmically. You know, you absolutely have to get the decisions that you make right. It goes along with this feeling that's very hard to shake, even though you know it's absurd on some level that, that like the whole of history is there to lead up to your life. And now you've got to like make sure you do the, the right things with it. And there's something very, very freeing about seeing that most of the decisions that that I get sort of tangled up in and feel anxious about on a day-to-day basis will not matter to anybody, um, uh, you know, a hundred years from now, not because I then become a nihilist and do nothing and think what's the point, but because then I think, well, why not take the, the riskier, the bolder decisions? Why not do the things that could lead to some really interesting, uh, outcomes and, you know, it, it, it's, it's freeing in that respect. The other thing is that there's something wrong, and I'm working here off the work of the philosopher Ido Landau, and I write about his work in the book, that there's something wrong with a definition of meaning when it comes to assessing the meaning of your life that um, that fixates on this idea of putting a dent in the universe, of, of creating a legacy that rings through the millennia or something, because that would seem to rule out lots of things that I think we instinctively know are meaningful ways to spend life, Right cooking nutritious meals for your children, uh, beautifying a little corner of your neighborhood, even though it's not going to save the world, um, uh, look, caring for elderly relatives. I, I, the, I read a thing that made a big impression on me by, uh, it was Charles Eisenstein, the um, spiritual writer, but writing about somebody else, an environmentalist who had received blowback from the environmental movement for taking sort of a couple of years off the cause to spend most of it caring around the clock for his elderly mother-in-law. And just that there's something wrong with a value system that says, well, that's a total waste of time. Like you just shouldn't be bothered with that nonsense because like she's going to die and the planet is still going to be on a, on a glide path to, to terrible climate crisis that, you know, this, we know that there are, meaningful things we do with our lives all the time that are not reflected on that sort of world straddling scale. Um, and so just sort of lowering the bar when it comes to one's, uh, 
definition of what counts as meaning can enable you to see that that um, an awful lot of things you're already doing may be more meaningful than you'd, you'd realized. And that, you know, a lot of the choices that are open to you to about how to spend your life are more meaningful than you'd thought. Um, now, I can't resist the totally freelance, um, un unqualified theological speculation here and say that I suspect that um, one response to this from a religious perspective is to say, well, the, the, the way you get around this paradox or this seeming, you, you don't just have to lower your bar. You have to, you have to understand what it means that, you know, God cares about the movement of a, the tiniest sparrow's wing, right? I mean, if you can be omni, if, if God can be omnipresent in the lives of everybody, then everything they do matters from a cosmic scale too, in the sense that the, the God scale is the cosmos scale. So uh, I'm open to that possibility, I suppose. But but I'm just using it in the. I'm I suppose I'm just doing step one in that chapter in the book. I'm saying okay, we'll talk about that later, maybe. But just like maybe go easy on yourself uh, from the point of view of this notion that what you do in your life has to be has to fulfil what you think of as putting a dent in the universe. Because you know, I mean. It, did the iPhone even put a dent in the universe? No disrespect to Steve Jobs, but in a couple of millennia, a couple of a couple of thousand years, yeah, are we going to be? Is is humanity, if it survives, going to be uh, using iPhones? I assume not. No, and will we remember who Steve Jobs was? Right, right. Who invented the telegraph? Good luck with that. Right. <laughs> and half the audience is going, "What's a telegraph?" Right. <laughs> like yes, exactly. it's, 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 I, I loved it because, and, and again, there's great biblical precedents for that view. So people of faith don't need to be threatened by that at all. There is a like, oh my goodness, I'm just a speck in the universe and what does my life matter? And yet somehow it does. It's a bit of a paradox. And, um, you know, it's that, it's that line that I've heard and used a few times. It's like, name your great, great grandfather. 99% of people can't do it. Right. Wow. Yes, I haven't heard that. Oh, yeah. But the, yes. Can you? Can you uh, name your great-great-grandfather? Great-great, no. No. Great, no. perhaps, but yeah, not Yeah, with a little bit of pause for thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we're significant. We're publishing books. And I wonder, I've got about a decade on you, so I'm in, in about 10 years older than you are. But I remember, and you can probably relate to this because it was pre-digital when you were a child, but I remember, you know, movie stars and famous people. And um, to me, there was zero access to that you might as well, they might as well have lived on another planet that I had no access to because yeah. we didn't have millions of dollars and I wasn't famous and I didn't have the talents to sing or play music or whatever it is that made you famous. But then said iPhone comes along and social media comes along and suddenly we all have a shot at making a dent in the universe. And yeah. you can start an Instagram account and some people go from zero to a million, others go from zero to 10,000 or 100,000 and suddenly we all have this shot at it and, you know, I'm a driven person by nature, something I'm working on. You appear to have been a driven person by nature. Yeah. And do you think, because you have a section on distractions too, and I want to get to where this is all going before we wrap up today, because you found a lot more peace since you've kind of realized that you're mortal, that you're a speck in the universe, that perhaps you're, you know, not going to make a dent in the universe. And uh, I guess I guess the question is... Um, really is 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 social media just making it easier for all of us to fall under this spell that 
our life has to matter. It has to be significant. And somehow that has to be measurable because we need a certain amount of fame or impact or difference or destiny or whatever. Like, do you think that's harder now than it was, say, when you or I were kids? Yeah, I think it is harder. And I think social media and digital technology in general is a big part to, to blame. The problem I always have is that I do think that these kinds of technologies, what they tend to do is just catalyze and supercharge everything in both directions. So um, it's definitely true that that sort of living in public and living for comparison and the creation of a sort of uh, competitive dynamics where there didn't need to be competitive dynamics. Nothing wrong with competition in in certain contexts, but there's no reason why we all need to be dragged into the same sort of pyramid structure battle with each other to to be the best. We can all just do our, our we ought to be able to just all do our all do our thing. Um on the other hand, you know, I'm very much aware that I couldn't, you know, without many aspects of this, the internet certainly, this I, I wouldn't have been able to do write this book as I did. And I don't think it would have been able to reach the people it's reached. I mean, mm. one of the fascinating things for any of us in the sort of writing audience, content creation, podcast, whatever, whatever that whole world is, is called. Um, I'm sure you know this from personal experience, right? I mean, because these technologies allow us to reach our tribes, the people who are really interested in following what we're doing, um, and, and engaging with it, um, it, 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 it doesn't actually need to be that many people as a proportion mm. of the world's population who are, um, it certainly isn't, you know, there's, I've been very, um, I, I've been very, very lucky and I'm grateful about how the response to this book, but you know, the, the overwhelming majority of the 8 billion people on the planet have absolutely no idea, uh, who uh, either me or you are, right? But but because, but, but because these technologies enable us to connect in these ways, um, you, you can find and you can reach those people. Because I think the other thing when I was coming up, and even when I was a sort of young writer, and it's still true today for some people in this trade, right? They think that what they're waiting for is the, everyone's sort of competing to have the mega blockbuster that's going to make them millions and millions of dollars and then, they're going to be super famous. And that basically doesn't happen in book publishing or uh, many other realms. And when it does to anyone, it happens to one in a, in out of, you know, a thousand people. So I think it, so I guess, I don't know why I went on a whole pro social media rant here, but I, I think one of the, that there are possibilities to use these technologies to actually embody that spirit of cosmic insignificance therapy. The idea that like, if I can reach a few thousand people and we can have an interesting discussion about things that matter, that's great. Don't need to be a Hollywood superstar uh, commanding the attention of, of millions. So this isn't your first book. Is this the one that you've had the most response to 4,000 weeks to date of all the things you've published? Yeah. I've only really, I've yeah. only written one other book. I had another book out that was a collection of uh, newspaper yeah. columns. Uh, so I've only got one real comparison point. Um, and yeah, yeah. Okay. So here's, here's the question I want to ask. It's, it's maybe a hypothetical, but I want you to imagine, you know, 33 year old Oliver Berkman writing this book when you were caught up in the productivity game that you were caught up in geeking out and your life was busy 
and it was somewhat unsatisfying, leading you to question everything. Mm-hmm. How, how would you respond to that kind of success then versus how it feels now? Because in the last 10, 15 minutes of the interview, I want to talk about your life now, some of the values you hold now. But I think most of us who have experienced a modicum of success would say, boy, you better have something solid to catch you because the high of hitting a New York Times list or, you know, being the talk of the town for that 15 minutes or 15 hours or 15 years doesn't satisfy the way you think it would. But the productivity trap makes you think it would. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's totally right. I think what I'd add to that is the difference is not that I, I I don't think I'm a completely different person than I was like 13 years ago. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm really into this notion that like a big part of personal growth is sort of accepting that there are certain aspects of your own personality that you're never going to get free of, even though you'd, (laughs) even though you'd really like to. And actually there's a, there's a great liberation in that acceptance but you know it's definitely i can see it in myself much more now so it's um it's easier to sort of step away from get some distance on and respond more creatively to so the one thing that springs to my mind is um i was always uh in that famous distinction between fixed mindset and growth mindset that i'm sure you'll have encountered i was always a fixed mindset a fixed mindset person and one one um one characteristic of that is that when you when something goes well, it the, the way you take that is that the bar has now been raised and you've got to meet that you've got to keep meeting that new standard. So, so you know, I did I did uh, you know I did very well in high school academics. You know, just in a completely tediously boring, predictable way that you would expect um, a certain kind of uh, certain kind of diligent student to do. But it doesn't bring pleasure because if you get straight A's one year, um, then now you've really got to do it the next year. It's, it'll be worse if you didn't. So, so that idea that success just sets a new bar that you have to keep meeting in order to feel good about yourself was something that I was very familiar with, although I didn't consciously see it in those, in those terms. And what's interesting with this book, I, you know, I don't want to overstate its success, but yeah, it's definitely exceeded my expectations. Um, what's, what's interesting with this, I see that same dynamic kicking in, right? I do mm. see that sort of stress response, which is like, oh God, you know, it's doing, it's done this and this and this. So now I've got to make sure that it keeps in, in that chart, or I've got to make sure that the paperback does as well as the hardcover or, um, you know, that I totally see that operating, but I see it now. And that is different because now I can be like, oh yeah, it's that, it's that thing. And it doesn't make attachment from it. Like, oh, that's me. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. It's me doing my old nonsense. And, Mm. um, you know, I don't actually believe that. Right. I don't believe that the next book I write, if I have the opportunity to write another book is, is, has got to be, um, I don't intellectually believe that it's got to be uh, as successful or more successful. Otherwise, um, otherwise like that's terrible or something, but, but I definitely recognize that, that emotional reaction. So, um, that, that's a difference and there's definitely a space there. There's definitely a gap 
Um, so I think it would have stressed me out more <laughs> to have uh, this kind of this this particular level of success um, then. Um, but at the same time, I would probably have uh, taken more of an ego boost from it because I just think like so much of this is luck and good fortune and accidents of timing. Um, and uh, probably the younger you are and the more you feel like you're trying to get in control of your life, the more you're going to want to take credit for things like that. Yeah. Um, you cover so much in the book and I would encourage people to read it. I just, you talk about freedom and loneliness. You take a poke at digital nomads who have all the freedom in the world and yet not a lot of deep relationship. Um, you talk about just just this piece in that you have from realizing your insignificance. You talk about uh, distractions and how to overcome the temptation that everybody else has a plan for your life. You got to figure that out. If you could describe your life now and some of the things that you're experiencing since you let go of the productivity treadmill, the productivity hamster wheel that you seem to be on, what are some qualitative changes that you feel in your life now? I'm trying to get the right word, but you yeah. know, whether that's a feeling, an emotion, yeah. a quality, a piece, uh, like what, what, after having arrived through this philosophical framework at a new way of thinking about time, what are the tangible results in your life? How's it different? Well, I don't know if I've arrived in any finalistic sense, but yeah, having, having, <laughs> having, having, evolved in some ways. I'm definitely much less anxious than I was. I mean, the problem with these kinds of questions is you're always comparing, the correct comparison is with how I used to be, as opposed to with a, with a model human being. So I'm probably still, I'm probably still pretty anxious as a person compared to some people. I'm probably still quite engaged. Well, even subjectively. Yeah. But no, yeah, I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely significantly sort of uh, calmer. I'm a lot more, um, I'm a lot less rigid. I'm a lot more flexible in a, in a sort of, I don't mean I'm just a pushover and do what everyone else wants me to do, but I'm much more able, I think, to have my own agenda for my life and my work coexist with other people's. Um, although I still struggle with it a bit, you know, I think if I had had a I mean, I'm often just, as I say, I didn't become a parent until I was uh, 40. And I often, I'm just amazed that people do this in their 20s. I would have been such a disastrous parent in my, in my 20s. But, um, you know, uh, to plan one's day in a way, for example, that, that it has direction and focus. And obviously your, um, your book uh, that I've been reading is, is totally in the spirit in a way that also allows for the fact that, you know, small children obey a different schedule and you want it to be able to interact. You don't, you don't want to define, you don't want to plan your life in a way that makes it, that renders it, that defines it as a problem when, you know, my five-year-old bursts into the room as he might at any moment during this recording, by the way, (laughs) um, and wants to tell me something, right? You, You don't want to make it I think I, I think I'm better. It's a struggle, but I think I'm a lot better at um, at sort of exerting agency in in a relational context instead of either 
I get to plan everything or I just have to give up and do what everyone else wants me to do. And I sort of oscillate between like being a control freak and resentfully going along with everyone else. That, that ability to sort of navigate relational life, marital life, communal life without, um, without losing sight of things that are uniquely my own agenda. I feel like we arrived in a similar place via different um, methods. Probably the greatest joy that I've found in the, the approach that I share in At Your Best is I am significantly less anxious. I'm still driven, but it's a modulated drivenness. It's mm-hmm. not going to destroy the people around me right, or right. Uh, ruin relationships. <laughs> and I have hobbies now. You got a whole section in the book or chapter two on hobbies, which I would strongly urge people. And this is great for those of us who are really driven. Uh, find something that costs you money that you really enjoy. There is a challenge. That's the definition of a hobby, right? But I want to I felt Oliver when I was reading your book and preparing these questions, like you and I could have spent an afternoon together and just let the tape uh, run. But for my final question, or one of my final questions, I want to talk about near the end of the book, you encourage people to abandon hope and have this really interesting micro narrative where you quote someone, I can't remember who, but who says, well, you know, the apocalypse is coming, the apocalypse is coming. Well, maybe the apocalypse is here, like the world, you know, the Arctic ice caps are melting and you know, as we record this, we've got a war in Europe and a very angry Russian leader. Right. And, um, you know, maybe the apocalypse is here. And I may be butchering your argument here, but you say this can actually bring you peace. Can you explain that? It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think that hope in the way it functions in our lives, I'm not saying this word doesn't get used in different ways, but I think the way it often functions in our lives is as a way of placing power and agency outside of ourselves. Um, and I'm quote here in the in the that er, that section the the environmentalist Derek Jensen who, who who talks about this right. You you don't want to be hoping governments change their way and start doing what you want them to do as an environmental campaigner. You don't want to be hoping that the next generation is going to sort out the mess the world is in. You don't want to be hoping that one day you'll have the freedom to spend your time on earth in the way that you consider most meaningful. You you want to actually let go of that kind of hope in order to see that like this is it. Life isn't a dress rehearsal. You're here now, you've got the resources you have, and you don't need hope in this sense as to be a sort of motivator to lead you on to something that's going to be happening in the future. You can just do the things that you that bring meaning to you and to those you love out of the motive of love, right? So Jensen has this lovely thing about why, why he's a real radical environmentalist. If you look into his work, I mean, it's like he's a, he, he, he um, he he takes all this extraordinarily long way, but he makes this point that like you don't need to hope that your um, that 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 salmon will survive in order to dedicate your life to saving their um, the the waterways where they live. You just need to love that they do exist, and that you want to um, give your life or part of your life to to allowing that to happen here and now. So you know. Again, just to return to a persistent theme of our conversation, I can see ways in which this feels antithetical to 
theological viewpoints about like what we're doing here and what that all means for the future. But at the same time, I can see a lot of affinities, right? Because I think mm-hmm. it's this, mm-hmm. this, this notion that like, it's here, it's, it's, it's right here that that matters, and this is not a sort of degraded version of something else. This is, or a sort of provisional, um, preparatory version of of something else. This is this is it, right here. Yeah, it's it's and, and people have to read it. I think you really have to read that chapter because it made me think. And you know, even looking at the life of Jesus, Jesus was very um, focused on the here and now. Mm-hmm. He talked about what would happen in the future, but very focused on what was around him and gave the famous passage that many of us struggle with uh, is don't worry. Don't worry right. about your life. Right. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry have about no, tomorrow. No you quote it. The, you quote it in the book. Right. Actually. Have no care for the morrow for the morrow will take care of itself. Right. Right. Itself. Sufficient to yeah. the day of the evils thereof. I always, I mean, I say in the book, I, 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 it's probably very sacrilegious, but I always, I always hear wry humor in those lines. Right. I mean, I always hear like, <laughs> I don't think that's you've sacrilegious. not got enough to worry about, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oliver, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, any final word for our audience today? Anything you would encourage them to do, a call to action or a question you want them to ask themselves as we wrap up? Wow. I mean, call to action. No, I think, I, I guess the question that I try to keep coming back to myself is something like, I haven't got a specific phrasing of this, but something like, uh, you know, what would you do differently today if you really let it sink into your bones that you aren't going to be able to do everything that you can't, that, that, that you're going to, that you're going to have to neglect all sorts of things that legitimately matter in life. If you're going to spend your time on anything at all, how would that affect how you spent the day, if you could actually sort of unclench a bit from that quest to make sure you made time for absolutely everything that could possibly strike you as meaningful, because that is off the table, I think, for us uh, in our earthly lives. And I think it's a real relief because the pressure's off to try and do that. You just need to make a bit of time for a few things that count. I really, really appreciate your book, your work, you taking the time in the midst of a really, really busy season for you to take an hour with our listeners. Where can, obviously, books everywhere, where can you people find you online these days, Oliver? Uh, yeah, book is everywhere you'd expect to buy a book. Um, and then my website, oliverberkman.com, has more about the book and and some, that's where you can sign up for the email newsletter that I write, which I call uh, The Imperfectionist. That's what I'm going to sign up for right after finishing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I don't know about you, but I love it when we pull the camera back a little bit and we start talking a little bit of philosophy and some theology and we start thinking about really why we do things and and the bigger picture, not just how we do things. So really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you to our partners, ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at ProMediaFire.com and by Leader. Check out Leader, L-E-A-D-R, no second E, dot com for how you can better engage and grow your team today and use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, for 20% off your first year. Well, we got a lot coming up for you. Uh, Dave Ramsey is my next guest. I've been looking forward to this interview. We've been setting it up literally for two years. Pandemic got you know involved, canceled trips, all that stuff. Uh, well, here's an excerpt. Because you underpaid 
and got a substandard programmer who did a substandard work, and we call that Christian excellence? Come on. That's unbelievable and completely unacceptable. And yet that, that has been pervasive in entire sections of Christianity, to where when you say, when you put Christian on the outside of it, it means, oh, well, you know, it's not a really good film, uh, but it's a Christian film. You know, <laughs> what? You know, I mean, come on. Oh, it's not really good music, but it's Christian music. They said Jesus, you know. Oh, no, I mean, come on. If you're going to put, I tell our people, if you're going to put a cross on, on, on it, drive it right. You know, if you're going to put a cross in the back window of your car, drive it with excellence. I mean, we're not going to walk around telling people we're Christians unless we are A1, the best in the market, because we're a bad witness for Jesus when we're substandard. And underpaying people is a sure way to get some substandard work done. Also coming up, we have got Shauna Nequest. That was a fascinating conversation. Andy Stanley, another one that I think is going to raise a few eyebrows in, in a good way. Uh, who else have we got? We've got Susan Kane, Daniel Pink. I'm very excited to have Daniel back. Vanessa Von Edwards, Ramit Sethi, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, and so many others. I think you're going to really enjoy this season that we have prepared for you. And thank you for continuing to share, continuing to get the word out. We're welcoming new listeners, I think, every single episode. And if you're one of them and you haven't hit subscribe yet, please do so. And if you enjoyed this episode, Please share it on social. Please text the link to a friend. And would you let us know? You can tag me. I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on other platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can get more content by going to theartofleadershipacademy.com. It's something we launched about a month ago, and it is going fantastic. We've got hundreds and hundreds of leaders in there in the first 30 days. And the conversation is exactly what we hoped it would be. We've got leaders who are thoughtful, who are uh, supporting each other. We've got world-class mentors in there who are going to be leading the conversation. And I've got all of my courses in there. I've got, well, just about everything in there that we produce. And I also do training for your team inside the Art of Leadership Academy. And I do a live monthly coaching call, and I bring in some incredible guests as well for that. So you're probably thinking, well, how much is it? It's like $397 a year. That's it. Why? Because we want you to have access to the very best, to have peers running in the same direction. We have business leaders in the academy. We have church leaders in the academy. We have people from all over the world in the academy. And you're going to find somebody that you can run with. We even have a really cool app that, that uh, we've customized. And you can hit the near you button and figure out, oh my goodness, there's three other members in my area, my city, my county, my region. And you guys can hang out. Like It's a way to really meet colleagues who are making a difference. And we'd love to see you inside the Art of Leadership Academy. So go into theartofleadershipacademy.com. You can register there today. And uh, that's where we put some of our best stuff. And if you enjoy conversations like this, you're going to love the Academy. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.